things first. This is about truth telling. I have no agenda. Zero. I always have questions. What's the problem? That's just who I am. This is what no mercy is all about. Hey, here I come. You can book it. Ah. This is the moment of a lifetime. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Breath taking a move that I make. I give it everything I got. Cause that what it takes. I push the limit till it break. The heart of the brave. The soul of a legend with the will to be great. Hold up. Welcome. <laughs> What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest edition of No Mercy with yours truly, Stephen A. Smith, coming at you as I love to do, usually at the very least every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Sometimes there's, there are alterations, as in yesterday when I was not available because I've been covering a whole bunch of stuff and being on a book tour and everything like that. I barely had a chance to breathe and go to the toilet, let alone do a podcast. But I'm back. I'm back. I'm right here in the studio thanks to our official studio sponsor, FanDuel Sportsbook. FanDuel is the official sports betting company of the No Mercy Podcast. I want to talk to you today about principles. The reason I want to talk to you about principles is because, damn it, most people don't have enough of them. They say they do, but they don't. And by the way, none of us are immune to being innocent. Of such assertions. I think I'm a very principled man. Damn it, I've compromised them from time to time in my life, as I'm sure you have, as I'm sure everybody has. But when we think about our true heroes in our society, our true heroes could be Dr. Martin Luther King, to a lot of people's Malcolm X, it's Nelson Mandela, the list goes on and on, Mahatma Gandhi for crying out loud. There's a whole bunch of people that we could look at and we could say these were principled individuals. You know why? Because they were willing to stand up and pay the ultimate price. In the sports world today, our modern definition of a principled individual who made a tremendous sacrifice is Colin Kaepernick. In the past, it was Muhammad Ali who refused to enter the armed services and enter the Vietnam War on behalf of the United States of America. Because as he said back then, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word. And he said the N-word. I just said the N-word. He said what it is. Principles are important. They make you. They drive you. If more people stood on their beliefs, just imagine for a second what our society could be. This is all things that we know. Very, very few people. We talk about courage. But very few of us have it. Most of us are a bunch of damn punks. Wusses. Scared of our own damn shadow. Some of us have good reasons. You got a family to feed. You got children to take care of. You don't want your bottom line compromised. And your quality of life severed. Fair enough. But others are heartless. And I don't mean heartless as in evil. I mean heartless as in being devoid of courage. We're scared shitless of our own damn shadow. Because anything that would potentially upset an apple cart 
the proverbial apple cart. We're scared to death. You know, some people would even say one of those people is not Kyrie Irving. I've been very, very critical of Kyrie Irving because, damn it, show up to work. Tired of you collecting that damn money and you don't show up to play. That was my argument against him last season. I ain't say that about him this season. And, yeah, it wasn't the wisest thing in the world for him to uh, uh, put a link to a film that the Jewish community labeled and interpreted as anti-Semitic. No, that was not wise. That was not smart at all. But I will tell you this. From speaking about issues of of humanity to bringing up the WNBA and, and the need to help them be on chartered jets as opposed to flying commercial like they do and all of this other stuff. Kyrie Irving has tackled an abundance of issues in recent years that most professional athletes wouldn't dare have the courage to do. So in that regard, Strictly in that regard, got to give respect where respect is due. But I don't know if there's anybody, and that includes Colin Kaepernick, that we could argue deserves more credit for courage than former NBA player Mahmoud Abdul Raruf. I don't know. Didn't want to stand for the national anthem. Brought hell down upon him. Clearly cost him his career. If you watched him play, you knew he wasn't finished. When he was in college, his name was Chris Jackson. He was an All-American, averaging 30. 30. That Chris Jackson. That Chris Jackson. That was in college basketball when the Kenny Andersons and the Bobby Hurleys of the world were playing college basketball. That brother. He had a lot of courage. A lot of us didn't take the time to find out why. Not really. Well, you know something? We're going to do that right now. He's got a hell of a story to tell. It's got a sports documentary film coming out, debuting February 3rd on Showtime. It's entitled Stand, and it is appropriate because the one thing this brother can never be accused of is sitting down and not taking a stand. We can't say that about him. You'll find out why in a minute. Stick around. You're listening to No Mercy with Stephen A., don't touch that dial. We'll be back with more in a minute. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gonna stop me high? Who gonna stop me high? It is my honor and privilege to have my next guest with me. I'm here in our New York studios. Um, this brother, as far as I'm concerned, was a superstar basketball player. I don't care what anybody says. I know what I saw at LSU. I know what I saw in the NBA. I know what I saw when people like Kenny Anderson and others were playing college basketball, but this brother busted onto the scene and was dropping 30 a game in college. The man formerly known as Chris Jackson. 
Mahmoud Abdul Raouf. It's been a while, my brother. How have you been? I've been great. How about yourself? I'm doing great, man. It's good to see you. First things first, how you doing? How's life? How's everything been going? I won't complain. It could be better and worse, but we don't complain. I got you. I got you. You're sitting here with me right now because you've got a sports documentary film entitled Stand mm -hmm. that premieres February 3rd on Showtime. Talk to me about that right now. What is that about? Uh, Stand is about my life. Uh, I'm moments of vulnerability. I'm raw. Uh, my, how I navigate through faith, uh, how I navigate through uh, growing up in poverty, feeling like I've been miseducated, misinformed, and, and going through that, maneuvering through that, educating myself, um, growing up with Tourette syndrome, the mental challenges that I faced, uh, the struggles with making a decision, social political decision, and then the effects of that on me financially, on my family. Mm -hmm. Uh, not knowing my father, you know, bits and pieces of what a lot of people, some some areas in their life go through that somebody can get something from. It's been a while since a lot of people have seen you. I know we see you playing big three basketball. Mm -hmm. I know that we know that you was playing overseas and playing in Russia and stuff like that, but it's been a while since a lot of people have seen you. Why now? Why, why, why come out with this sports documentary film now? You know what? I've been telling my story for a while. And uh, I've had a lot of people say that it's a story that needed to be told. But at the same time, I think when I was younger, I had something to say, but uh, I've lived. I'm 53. I've, ex I've traveled. I've experienced. I've read more. And so I feel I'm in a better place right now to articulate it, uh, much different than I would have been then. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, so much has changed in a sense mm -hmm. with athletes speaking out, Kaepernick, and uh, time is short. Mm. You know, tomorrow's not guaranteed. Yeah. What hesitancy specifically did you have beforehand? I mean, I know that you just alluded to it, mm -hmm. but could you be more specific in terms of what reticence, what level of hesitancy did you have when you thought about it and said, okay, I've been telling my story, but to get to a point right now where I'm going to push this and ultimately Showtime is going to grab a hold of this and we're going to tell this story through my lens. Now's the time more than ever before. Why wasn't the time before? Well, Again, uh, uh, what I just said, but also, you know, I've had my stories. Uh, I've told my story so many times and often I felt that it was butchered. Mm. It wasn't told correctly. Um, and I was comfortable with some of the people. Teams are important. And so we've had some people that I felt comfortable with that was going to push it to make sure that it was told the way I wanted to tell it. Right. I'm, I'm remembering and I'm just listening. Let me go back and rewind the clock mm -hmm. just a little bit because, you know, you wasn't a dude that would dribble the ball excessively, throw it behind your <laughs> back between your legs a thousand times before you threw in a finger roll or whatever. You'd sit up there, put it through your legs once, cross over, and launch from three. You you scored 55 points in a game. You scored over 50 in another. I think it was against Florida that you dropped 50 one time. You averaged 30 mm -hmm. as a freshman. You were All-American. You was, you was absolutely something special when you reflect back to who you were and what you were at that particular moment in time in your life what would you describe yourself to be you're talking about all around all across no, the board talking, i'm just talking Basketball. about across the board yeah but 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 just you across the board as well. yeah. oh my goodness man uh uh i was basketball centered uh i looked at myself outside of basketball i didn't see a future for myself academically mm. i looked at myself Outside of that as being inadequate, somewhat of an inferiority complex, 
part of that was because of my upbringing. I always say that your environment has a way of molding and shaping you. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that my mother, you know, they can't give you what they don't have. So educationally, and then you're looking at your surroundings. And when you look at television, most of the images they show you of people with money and wealth, mm-hmm. actors, entertainers, musicians. And so I knew I had fast twitch muscles and athletic ability. That's what I strove for. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew that this was going to have to be my story, mm-hmm. that if I'm going to make it, I'm going to have to put everything into this game of basketball. Was there anything, as you reflect on that period of time, being a former teammate of Shaquille O'Neal, mm-hmm. Stanley Roberts, guys like that? Say, I remember this mm-hmm. stuff, man, because I loved y'all. I loved it. I couldn't believe Georgia Tech took y'all out. I thought you like, couldn't the either. Weapon 3, Kenny Anderson, Brian Oliver, Dennis Scott. I didn't even think they would beat y'all because I just thought y'all were just too big and you were too gifted. I thought y'all would beat them. But when you think about the relationships that you had off the basketball court, Dale, you know, uh, with the coach that you had, with mm-hmm. Shaquille O'Neal as a teammate what kind of influence if any at all did they have on you as you reflect back to who you were back then and what you ultimately became known you know you became known to be yeah well that's that's a deep question I haven't looked at it so much in terms of the players but I'm sure that there's some benefits from that you know Shaquille was he was a work workaholic he worked hard I think with Shaquille he had insight he was uh I remember being in the the dorm room Mm -hmm. and he said I'm gonna be the first player that makes eighty million dollars mm. in a, in, a, in a with a basketball contract. Mm. He's made much more than that, right. um, but he was confident, you know, and uh, uh, seemed to be for sure about himself. And I think a lot of that came from the fact of his stepfather mm. and his mother how he was raised. But Dale Brown, for me, I think the most critical thing he ever did for me was give me the autobiography of Malcolm X, mm. and that that just took me on a whole nother level. Before I ask you about the impact of the autobiography mm-hmm. of Malcolm X, why did Dale Brown elect to give you that autobiography? Did he give it to the team or was it just you? And if it was just you, mm-hmm. why you? It was just me. Okay. And I asked him that years later. And he said he don't know. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, well, could it be because he would always allude to the fact that I would do interviews. And sometimes he would check me in, in front of him. They said, man, tell him how you really feel. And so I think because I came from Mississippi and I always carried myself with humility, soft-spoken, that he looked at that as being too passive. Mm-hmm. And he was, and, I'm, and I said, could it be that you gave that to me because Malcolm wasn't passive mm-hmm. and you wanted me to get something of what he had? He said, you know what? I could see that. But he, outside of me offering that information, he, don't, he doesn't know why he gave Again, it Again, before I get into Malcolm X and the impact that that autobiography had on you, when you talk about how you were, you know, you weren't too aggressive. That you weren't too outspoken. Mm-hmm. Do you believe that was because of your upbringing, because of what insecurities you had, or was it because you was growing up in Mississippi? Uh, both, no question. Miss- I'm look, a grown man, and look, I'm, I ain't gonna lie to you. I'm nervous when I'm rolling through Mississippi. Listen, a Still. lot, a lot of people are. Uh, uh, your environment has a way of molding and shaping you. The information you receive, the images, so for sure. Mm-hmm. And seeing my parents, or my mother, and my uncles and aunts. And how during that time the relationship was, and in private they were they were they were bold, they were brass, but in public, in front of white people, head would go down. And I saw myself developing those same tact, I mean those same uh, mannerisms. Mm. And but I knew that I didn't like it. And I said, man, I, I don't like the way this feels. But I didn't know necessarily, you know, how to get out of it. Mm. And so yeah, I, I saw that I was that person when it was something that I saw. I would get nervous, or I wanted to confront authority. I would get nervous. Mm. I said, man, I got I to gotta find a way. I got to find a way. So that definitely uh, impacted the way I began to 
carry myself in Cedar Way. My first, my first confrontation with authority was when my head coach, I found out that they were hiding my letters and I missed a prestigious camp, mm-hmm. I think at the time in uh, South Carolina. Mm-hmm. Are you talking about when you were in high school getting ready to go to college and you found out your, co- your coach was hiding his letters? Yep. The, the, all the letters came to the, to the high school. And then someone caught wind that I was invited to the Nike camp. Mm-hmm. And I almost missed it. And so I had to confront him. And now you mess with my livelihood. Right. And I mean, I'm, I'm busting my, you know mm-hmm. what, trying to survive, trying to make it. So I confronted him and I told him, look, I'm not coming to ask your permission. I said, I'm coming to let you know. I, I, I'm aware of what you did. I don't like it. I was just, I was, I was, I wasn't uh, diplomatic. <laughs> I didn't have no diplomacy. And uh, I said, I'm going to that camp. And if I wouldn't have went to that camp, I wouldn't have played against Jordan. I wouldn't have ended up becoming the number one guard in the nation. And uh, yeah, so, and they had a rule that I had, the Mississippi had a rule mm. that if I went, I had to pay my way, even though wow. Nike was paying my way. Wow. That if I paid my way, that I would be ineligible to play high school basketball. And then after Dr. Dunn, this doctor put money in my mother's account for me to go. Mm. Going, they say, you can't bring back any paraphernalia. So I've been bitter. I'm still bitter with Mississippi because, wow. because I think about all the athletes that they could have destroyed. Wow. And they they tried to do it to you, and they didn't mm-hmm. get away with it. What was that coach's excuse for keeping those letters of intent from you? He, he said to me, almost verbatim, he said, you can get just as much, if not more, notoriety in the state of Mississippi. I said, man, get out of here with that. I said, this is the most prestigious camp in the nation with 110 of the top high school basketball players at that camp. Coaches from all over the country are going to be. There's no way in the world I'm going to have that type of notoriety. Mm-hmm. And then he just shut up. Wow. Yeah. So let's get to the autobiography of Malcolm X because mm-hmm. reading, doing my research on, on you, they talked about how it had such a profound impact mm-hmm. on your life and helped shape and formulate the man you would ultimately become. Mm-hmm. Explain that. Man, look, he was, uh, the truth meant more to him, I think, than anything. And this is what I got from his life. And he wasn't afraid to also admit that he was wrong after all of those years and then, but also he was courageous and uh, he didn't mind speaking, speaking the truth to power as they say. And that's something that I didn't have and it's something that I wanted because I didn't want my, I felt that if if my life when it's all said and done, if all you can remember is man, that dude had a, he had a mean crossover and a quick release, he can put points on the board, to me that's a wasted life. And I, and and he encouraged me to begin to think and analyze my surroundings and the world around me and I started taking steps to learn how to tell people no, tell them what I think, sitting with that discomfort, you know, and then coming back. And, and I started seeing the benefits of it. And from the reading, you gain confidence, you know, because you start sharing information. Right. You know, a lot of people think like you. They're similar. And so that develops confidence. Confidence grows into courage. Then the courage grows. And you know what? I got to do something with this. Because there's a saying in Quran that don't, let, don't be like a donkey with books on your back. Right. You got all that knowledge and you're not putting it to use. And so... Malcolm helped that transition for me. And then I just began to read almost anything I put my hands on. March of 1996. Mm-hmm. It's my rookie year covering the NBA. Mm-hmm. Um, you got yourself embroiled in that controversy because you refused to stand for the national anthem. Yeah, We know that Commissioner Stern, God rest his soul, lost his mind mm-hmm. over that. Advertisers and sponsors lost their mind over that. Um, 
you know, you were docked a couple of, I think, a game or a couple of games pay, if I remember correct. I think mm-hmm. right at the time it was like 31000 a game for crying out loud, something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And you wouldn't budge, mm-hmm. at least initially. Why did you take that position at that time? Was it because of this epiphany? Was it because of the reading of Malcolm X's autobiography? Was it something else? What was your reasoning for taking that position at that particular moment in time? What was going on with you? Yeah, actually, it was like four months or so the previous season. Yeah. And then the next season, they, they caught on to it. Gotcha. But, uh, yeah, Malcolm was the the catalyst. But then after that, the the large part of my, part of my education came from when I was in the league, traveling on the road, mostly every city I went to. Being a Muslim, man, people find out, yeah. you know, and they're excited. And so I was, I'm a people's person. So... If I felt good about you, I would invite you into the room. All you had to say was, Salam alaikum, you come to my room. Yeah. I know better now. Right. And it takes more than that. But through that process, man, mostly every city, I would, we would stay up two, three, four o'clock in the morning. I would order room service. Some people have an academic discipline in history, some social sciences, political science, and they would introduce me to books and authors I've never heard, the Noam Chomsky's, Howard Zinn's, Gore Vidal's, Randall Robinson's, Kwanzaa Kunjufu's, Amy, and I'm, give it to me. Because at this time, like, I'm thirsty. Right. I've never, and I'm, I'm being exposed to things is just fascinating me, but also making me angry because I feel like I've been cheated mm-hmm. educationally right. because I didn't know that basketball, I knew, but not to the extent that statistically I had a better chance of becoming a doctor than a lawyer. Well, see, I, that's what, that, that's where I was going with it. I was like, you're a black man in America. I'm like, are you telling me that you felt you didn't know that you felt cheated until then? Because I'm like, we it's like we come out of the womb knowing we've been cheated. That we're operating behind the eight ball. Yeah, but you're talking about Mississippi gotcha. as opposed to a bigger city. Gotcha. And so, and you're talking about upbringing. You talk about growing up in a family that's already miseducated. Mm-hmm. And you got your surroundings are pretty much that way. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you know something ain't right. You know, you know, most every community we go to this ghetto is mostly us. Yeah. Things across the bridge is mostly them. Yeah. But you still, you're taught and conditioned, this is the way it is. Mm. Just play the game, be quiet. Mm. But you don't know that it's systemic. Gotcha. A system behind it. And so this is what, after the reading, I'm like, wow, this, is, uh, this has been in the making since the evolution of this country. And it hasn't really changed. Mm. Like if you look at the 30s, 40s, 50s, and you listen to the conversations, look at what people were fighting for. Right. And Same you look thing. at the conversations now. If you put the color in the black and white, and you, you would know the difference. And I'm like, no, nah, I can't. I can't roll with that. Mm. And so after reading all of that, and then reading what my my religion tells me about standing up for justice, even if it's against yourself, you can't be for God and in, justice and injustice at the same time. We give our allegiance on so many verses. And then I'm looking at the history, even prophethood, even the people that we admire, like Jesus today. Mm-hmm. Jesus would be considered a domestic extremist. Mm-hmm. All the prophets would because they took positions against power. Yeah. You know, so I'm like, man, this is when I die. You know, this is what I want my life to say for itself, that I stood for something because mm-hmm. that basketball, like a preacher once said, you know, he's never heard of a U-Haul on back of a hearse. Right. Can't take it with you. And so that caused me to look at things differently. And I know what it feels like to be poor. I know what it feels like to be misdiagnosed. And, you know, living in a society where you got over 40 million people without medical care, right. but we're supposed to look at America like it's the exceptional. World, greatest country in the world. Right, and then when it makes mistakes, it's innocent. Mm-hmm. I'm like, no, nah, this, don't, this, don't well this don't sit well with me. So I'm asking, that, and I'm glad you said that, because my whole point is 
the national anthem itself, mm-hmm. why that stands as opposed to something else. Because in, I'm not saying it was wrong. Please yeah, don't get me no, wrong. I, get I have you. no problem with I, it. I, I just want to I, I want to know. Get you. And, and and everybody has their right to their opinion. That's right. And and, and I understand that. I don't have to respect it, but right. I understand it. But the American flag, as well as the American anthem, is could be considered the most recognized and most revered symbol that represents what America stands for. You know, even becoming a citizen in this country, you have to recite a racist national anthem ri- written by a slave owner. Mm-hmm. You have to recite certain, it's militaristic. You have to recite certain uh, important battles just to gain citizenship. So... I knew that this is a symbol that people hold dear to them by far. And still, when you look at what Kaepernick did, Mm -hmm. right? Anytime, whether it's black liberation movements, anti-socialist movements, et cetera, right? Decades earlier, they've understand that when you attack this symbol, it could mean murder. It could mean imprisonment. It could mean a slander for those who participate in doing that. But what were you trying to accomplish? Were you trying to bring attention to the iniquities of this nation and using that issue to do it? Or is it something where you 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 felt like highlighting this will be a source of healing for this nation? A healing they may not realize we really, really Both. need. Okay. Both. Because look, a lot of times people they look at these 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 stances that people make. And they want to vilify right off. They want to condemn. They want to attack. You know, this, this uh, all the diatribes and things associated with it. Mm-hmm. But they don't want to look deeper. And it's making decisions, taking risks like this also has to come from a place of love. I love myself enough and I love humanity enough that I'm willing to take a risk. And when you look at all of those people, I, I don't think any of them were absent from that place. It's like uh, Cornel West, I think, coined a phrase that justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. You know what I mean? So so I wanted both. I wanted to bring light to it. But also, yeah, why wouldn't, why wouldn't you want to heal a nation? Now, I don't think America will ever be healed. Mm. I really don't. You know, it's kind of like Randall Robinson in his book, Quitting America. He worked in Congress for years. You know, worked to free Amistad and, and Mandela and season he he left he said man america is incapable of change mm. and this is a person embedded in the system highly right. intelligent mm. and so that's coming from a place but that doesn't mean that i'm not going to stop mm-hmm. even if it's in pockets you know cuz in islam there's a saying that to take one life unjustly it's as though you killed all of humanity mm-hmm. but also the flip side of that to save one life same thing with martin luther king injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere right. well if, if injustice is anywhere a threat to justice everywhere, justice is a threat to injustice. That's right. So you can always flip it around. So that's that's just what I'm on. And I've been on that ever since I began to read and come across things and ask myself, what do you want your history, what do you want your life to say when it's all said? How did you feel about how the NBA community and the sports world overall received your message? Whether they supported you enough or not? I one can imagine that when you look at the power structure, mm-hmm. of course they weren't receptive to it, but your breath, you know, your contemporaries, your colleagues, mm-hmm. your brethren, how do you feel 
it was embraced. Your position was embraced by them. Did you feel they were supportive enough? You talking about the NBA as the an NBA. institution, or are you talking about the players in the NBA? I'm talking about the players in the NBA. I'm not talking about the NBA because I know how the NBA felt about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, they don't take rocket science to know what they felt <laughs> right, about I'm it. Just making they, sure they think it big business. We know that. To, we, uh, we we're talking about you know advertising sponsors and yeah. not wanting to stand for the national anthem. It's predictable what position they're going to take. Exactly. But I'm wondering at that time, before I get into Kaepernick, because I'm going to transition to that in a second, mm-hmm. I'm wondering at that time in your mind, how receptive were your contemporaries towards the message that you were trying to disseminate and how supportive were they of you in your eyes? And I'm not just talking about NBA players. I'm talking mm-hmm. about professional athletes, period. Yeah. I think there's 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 two ways to look at it, or more than two. In private, I think most of them are very receptive because yes. we have these conversations all the time, mm-hmm. barbershop conversations, on the bus, on the plane. Right. So, and most of us come from the same socioeconomic backgrounds. So, in private, it's a different language. Publicly, is when things change, mm-hmm. and so, uh, and and I, I wasn't surprised that in mass, that most didn't come out and say anything. Why? Because, look, history is oftentimes a clear indication of what's going to happen in the present and yes. the future. And so history has shown that anytime something like this happens and somebody speaks out, the majority will not respond. Mm. Until later, in words, man, we love Martin Luther King. We love Malcolm X. Yes. So I wasn't surprised. I was more disappointed mm. that I'm hoping that, you call it delusional hope, whatever, I'm like, man, because you have these conversations like we're tough in private but in public is a whole different story Mm. so I was disappointed but I mean but pleased that there were there were players not just on my team but outside Shaq Mm -hmm. uh, uh, Michael Jordan even said something right you know in in support Uh, you know uh, came out and what weren't weren't afraid to to articulate their support for me Mm. but it was it was disappointing did you feel at that moment that your NBA career your days were numbered Yes and no. I, I felt a part of me, again, delusional hope. I'm like, look, what's done is done. I express myself, not that it's going to stop, but I'm a professional. I'm going to keep coming. I'm going to keep playing. And it's about production. Again, hoping that things, but a part of me, because of history, is like uh, I wouldn't be surprised. Mm. And initially, when it when it happened, I'm not quick to rush to uh, accusing somebody of blackballing. Right. Just like if a white person does something, not every time a white person do something to you is it racial. That's right. And But there's a tendency for us to do that. And so I sat back and I paid attention. And so I'm looking at, man, I'm traded. I didn't know at the time, but now I do, that they had a poll in Denver. John Elway is loved tremendously, mm. but I was the most popular athlete in Denver. I'm a people person. I get out. I talk to people. Right. Then my minutes started to decline. Then they put me in and taking me out. Life is rhythm. Basketball is rhythm. That's right. You see Gary Payton. You see Mitch Richmond. You see people go to L.A. under Kobe. Don't get that ball. That's they ain't right. the same player. They ain't the same player. Right, because they're used to getting it. Right. And then I'm, they come out with the, I'm hearing coaches in the locker room. Say, man, why aren't they playing this? Do we organize our defenses around it? Then they come out with this. This uh, special about top free throws and shooters in the league. I'm in it. I'm not one time seen. Mm. Sounds to me. And there's relationships in everything. And so there's a country club atmosphere too. And then we call Coangelo. 
my agent at the time, Sharif. I'm in my prime. I'm just coming off of numbers before this thing hits. Right. And before he can even finish, Coangelo, president at the time of uh, Phoenix. Jerry stopped, Colangelo. Jerry yeah, Colangelo. Yes. Stops him in his tracks. Said, man, uh, we not interested. And it has nothing to do with his basketball either. I mm-hmm. said, boy, I wish I could have had that on audio. Wow. But, yeah, so that's why then I said, you know what? Yeah, this is this is intentional. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even going into the summer league with Elgin Baylor, calling me, said, hey. Clippers at the time, running Clippers the Clippers. Clippers at the time. Yeah, I said, man, Elgin Baylor want to talk to you. We're looking for a guard. I come, sitting in the stands. I'm watching Elgin Baylor from a distance. He's watching me. I'm like, man, what's, in my mind, I'm like, what's taking so long? Guy comes back to me, said, Mahmoud, I apologize. I said, for what? He said, man, I know I called you here and we were interested. He said, but uh, Elgin Baylor said that uh, he don't want to talk on account of what you said on HBO. <laughs> and I just chuckled. Mm-hmm. And what did you say on HBO to remind our listeners? Well, HBO, views. I did an interview. Uh, this is right after I left uh, Vancouver. Mm-hmm. And it was right after 9-11. Vancouver Grizzlies. Yep. And Bernard Goldberg came and, and interviewed me. And he asked me some questions about a lot of things, about the house burning down, about what I felt. And and I presented some questions that I know that the media gets. You got a choice to present it or not present it. Right. And, and I was posing those questions to him, whether it's the, the money that was traded before the event. I said, that's suspicious. Mm-hmm. I said, that should be delved into. Don't you think the public have a right to know that? Mm-hmm. I talked about the person is, a, is, a, uh, is an Australian okay. who happened to be a Jewish guy. Okay. This was the news that he took out two li- uh, insurance policies before that happened. I said, don't you think that's suspicious before that happened? And then there's so many things that was that I gave him a list on. And so after that, and then I'm talking about the nine individuals that was on the other side of Manhattan, five were deported back to Israel as being part of Mossad, mm-hmm. right? I'm talking about, a, I'm giving a laundry list of stuff. I said, now, don't you think this is interesting, though? That, I mean, this should be presented instead of just presenting this side. And so we went into it back and forth. And so after that, of course, anytime you mention anything, because even anything Jewish, or is, is, I think this word anti, even with Kyrie, has been so weaponized mm-hmm. historically. Anti-Semitism, yes. Yeah, it's been so weaponized, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, you have, and by the way, it's weaponized by people who ain't even Jewish. The Anti-Defamation League, I interviewed Jonathan Greenblatt, the, the president of the Anti-Defamation League. He was like, we didn't call for Kyrie Irving to be suspended. Mm-hmm. We didn't call for these conditions to be met in order for him to return to basketball. We had nothing to do with that. So you had a whole bunch of people that weren't even a part of the Jewish community mm-hmm. jumping up and trying to impl- implement stipulations mm-hmm. to, to be appeased by Kyrie Irving and mm-hmm. they weren't even the, the quote unquote offended party. Yeah, and then you have some in the in, in the group that, it, that doing it too. So it, it yeah. goes both ways. But, but, but at the end of the day, here's the deal. So we fast forward mm-hmm. because your story, the way, that, the, the way that you just articulated sounds eerily similar to what a vast majority of folks believe has happened to Colin Kaepernick. Mm-hmm. Now, you know Colin Kaepernick. I believe that you wrote a book. It was under his imprint, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Um, how much do you believe his story mirrors yours? And there's definitely some similarities. Um, the stand that he took, social justice stand, uh, using the anthem and the flag uh, to bring attention to it, uh, how his minutes began to decline, uh, how the language shifted. Don't know if he have it anymore. I'm saying, and I knew that from the door because you see the playbook historically, right? right? I, I know the playbook. 
And so I said this to a lot of people even before it happened. I said, watch what happens now. And the same thing I saw happen to him. The only difference, though, is uh, this is at a time when there's social media. Yeah. And we didn't have that then. That's so true. it's not so easy, in a sense, to control the narrative the way it was then. And so you could see the support more so. Even when I was coming out, there was death, thre death threats. There was uh, hate mail. But I had just as much, if not more, supportive mail from natives, some Jews, Christians, atheists, agnostics, you know, white, black men, women, like, man, I agree with you in breaking down history, right? But, and I'm sure they were getting it, but they had a choice where I'm gonna show that and not show that. Okay. Uh, so social media changed that. And it wasn't until talking to, what's his name? Uh, Dr. Harry Edwards. Okay. That I never saw it this way. This is why he's who he is. Mm -hmm. He said, uh, he said, you know, when Muhammad Ali did what he did, it was under the Black Power Movement. It was easy to f tag along and frame it. When Kaepernick did what he did, it was under the Black Lives Matter Movement. He said, when you and Craig did what you did, there Craig was Hodges. no movement. Talk about Craig, Craig Hodges. Hodges. That's right. He said, there was no movement. It's like you were in the ocean with no paddle all alone. Mm -hmm. I said, well, I never saw it. Craig like that. Hodges, former shooting guard for the Chicago Bulls. Yep. You know, that was very, very instrumental in the early part of Michael Jordan's championship years. Well, go ahead. No, so... Yeah. You know, when you think about Colin Kaepernick and what he's had to endure, and you just brought up the social media aspect. Mm -hmm. What would Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf's life be like today if he did what he did during a time when social media was so prevalent the way that it is now? It would probably be similar to, in a sense, Kyrie. And I say that because, you know, I think the NBA projects itself as being progressive. And I've said this for a while. Uh, now, if you compare it to the NFL, no they're seemingly more progressive. No seemingly. Question. No question. However, I think, NFL, NBA. However, I think they're just more savvy. I okay. really believe this. And I say that because just how they handle Kyrie. People can agree and disagree all along, all they want. Kyrie posted something. And... As far as what I was seeing, he was engaging the public. Like, what you think? Yeah. I don't think he didn't say anything, anything, as far as I'm concerned, anti-Semitic. Now, one of my ex-teammates has a theater that played the same thing. Mm. Say, played the same movie. They ain't come down on him. Right. The person, Amazon refused Amazon, to take down the movie. And, and, and Jeff Bezos keep, keeps <laughs> it up and is profiting off of people looking at it and watching it. Exactly. So to answer your question, I don't think that in this day and age, Dave Zirin says something very instrumental. He said, it's the type of politics you espouse, mm -hmm. right? The fact that- He says the type. I say the type and the timing. Yeah, well, type, well I agree. No. I don't disagree. Type, type and timing. You know, it, 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 Craig Hodges, for example, the NBA has been having these social activist conversations. If things have changed so much, and I'm always pushing for others more than myself, I talk to Craig. Never once did the NBA call him to have these conversations, yeah. right? So that says something to me. Mm -hmm. Like, if you really change, reach back. And when, and when, when uh, what's his name? James Harden and, and Westbrook was in China. Okay. And they were about to answer a question. Hey, oh, don't answer that. Yeah. But I thought you allowed your athletes to, to deal yeah, with these questions. True. That's true. But you also know this. For better or worse. Mm-hmm. You know it all comes down to business. Of, of course. You know it's all, it's all about business. But say it, that. It, it, right. Well, saying it might compromise your business. Yeah, I get it. 
I get it. So like but, you say, it's a decision you've got to make. It's a choice that you have to make. And when could we ever rely on corporate America to make those decisions? Never. I can't recall. You can't. You can't because they're, they're a part of it. Yeah. As far as I'm concerned, they're a part of it. But but this is this is my thing, though. You know, don't project yourself in this way mm-hmm. when you know that that's not the case. Gotcha. You know, because some of us, we're not going to let it slide. Yeah. Right. And there's a lot of players that's going to be silent. I get it. Who wants their career to be upset? I mean, to, to, to be affected. Who right. wants to lose money? They can't take care of their family. Or you're just asking about the level of futility. Like, for example, on, on, on many, many occasions throughout my career, I want to speak out about a lot of things, and I usually do. Mm-hmm. But then there are some things that are just futile because even if you give voice to it, it just fades because nobody gravitates to it. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? And so a lot of times you're measuring, okay, what's the win here? Because you're winning this battle, but you're losing this war. And this war is more important than that little battle, so we make those decisions every day. Yeah. A lot of people will look at it that way as well. In the end, last question to you. Because this sports documentary film, Stand, premiering on Showtime February 3rd, what do you want people to walk away taking from this, based, especially based on this conversation that mm-hmm. you and I just had? What do you want them walking away and taking away, with the, t- taking away from this? You know what, man? Everybody has a story. Everybody has their experiences. And I think as human beings, we all share different experiences mm-hmm. uh, that that resonate with people. Right. And so, like I said before, there are people out there struggling with their faith. There are people out there struggling with, you know, being raised in certain conditions. There are people be struggling with mental issues. There are people struggling with with being labeled in disorders and being miseducated and and not feeling like they have courage to 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 articulate what they really believe inside themselves and, and, and take that risk. Whatever resonates with them. You know, I'm just telling my story. Mm-hmm. And then I'm hoping that there's some part of that story that's gonna make them think. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think if you're telling stories and and people can't leave with questions and it can't make them think deeper, you failed in storytelling. I know you say that you're just telling your story, but just talking to you, obviously there's a hell of a lot more to your story than just this story. Of course. And so I'm wondering, is this going to be the last we hear from you? Because you got a lot to say, my brother. A lot of people need to hear what you what, what you have to say. Is this just the beginning of Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf really coming out and really making sure that his voice is heard, particularly in this day and age where social media is so prevalent, mm-hmm. you don't need the conventional status quo to disseminate your message. You have the ability to do it on your own. Is, is, uh, should we expect to hear more from you in the days, the weeks, the months, and the years to come? Education doesn't end and stories doesn't end. So definitely, I'm in the process of putting some other stuff together. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to it, my brother. Thank you. I appreciate, appreciate the time, man. No, I appreciate you. you, man. Stand, Showtime, February 3rd, sports documentary film, Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, former superstar, college basketball, NBA. The brother was something special. Make no mistake about it. I think you still got a little game. I was watching the big three one time. I think you still got they a little game. They just got to play me a little bit still more. Got the, still got a little game with you. <laughs> they just got right, to play. I appreciate it, man. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. No, thank you. I appreciate yeah, no it, man. Definitely. Absolutely. Much love. This is the moment of a lifetime. Uh-huh. The clock's ticking like my lifeline. Until I flatline, I push it to the red line. Who gon' stop me high? Who gon' stop me high? Thanks again to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, former Denver Nugget, former Vancouver Grizzlies, former Sacramento King. He was a sensational basketball player. 
a superstar guard played college basketball with Shaquille O'Neal and Stanley Roberts, the Twin Towers that was supposed to win the national championship before they got knocked off by Lethal Weapon 3 at Georgia Tech. Dennis Scott, Brian Oliver, and of course the great homeboy himself from, you know, from Queens, New York, Archbishop Malloy, Kenny Anderson. Um, I, I, I'm grateful to Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf. Every now and then you run into somebody that just reminds you of the importance of being principled, that everything can't be about money. Certainly you got to make wise decisions. Certainly you don't want an issue to derail you to such a degree that you forget the priority to take care of one's family. When we live in a society that, you know, your income can be eradicated and eviscerated at the drop of a, of a, of a mispronounced word or sentence or syllable or whatever the case may be. We understand that we're living in different times, but it doesn't mean that we need to be devoid of principles. And when he brings up the issues that he's brought up, whether it's about the national anthem, whether it's about corporate America, corporate greed and what have you, because in essence, to some degree, that's what he was talking about without directly saying it because we were just conducting an interview. These are the kind of things we have to pay attention to. And every now and then, if not most of the time on this podcast, the objective is to get you to think about things you may have otherwise not thought about to understand that when we go to work every day and we go about the business of putting forth our due diligence to be the best that we can be, to be inspirational and motivational, yet productive and efficient. It's incredibly important to understand that your principles shouldn't be thrown out the window in pursuit of those other things. On many, many occasions, without the threat of having to lose one's livelihood, you can be principled. You can take a stand. You can stand up against something rather than fall for everything. You can do these things and still maintain or elevate your quality of life. Mahmoud Abdul Raouf wasn't fortunate enough to be able to pull that off as an NBA player. But he's still here. He's still moving on. He's still taking positions. He's still highlighting and edifying us all. And he's still exhibiting a level of bravery that most of us aren't willing to tackle. I'd say that's inspirational. I'd say that's motivational. I hope y'all all go and watch Stand, which premieres February 3rd, this Friday, on Showtime. I know I'll be watching it. And I know when I think about taking the stand and I have some fear, some trepidation or some hesitation, I know that he's going to be an inspiring source for me when I feel the need to do so anyway, despite that hesitancy. I'm just speaking for myself, but I'm quite sure knowing y'all, I'm speaking for some of y'all too. Until next time, everybody. Time for me to sign off. Peace and love until the next episode. Remember, you don't have to know sports to know mercy. I think Mahmoud Abdul Raouf taught us that lesson yet again. Hold on to it, embrace it, and see what it does for you. Until next time, everybody, I'm out. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13, an Odyssey company in association with Stephen A. Podcast Productions. Episodes of No Mercy are available now for free wherever you get your podcasts.